everyone, and welcome to another episode of From the Lighthouse. I'm Stephanie, and I'm here today with my lovely co-host, Michelle. Hi, Stephanie. Great to be back. Great to have you back. And we also have Jimmy, our producer, here with us as well. Very reluctantly, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> We're all a bit um, feeling a bit tired and... And, and rushed today so maybe if we sound a little bit odd that's why <laughs> we're very busy at the moment but we, we gathered here today to talk about what's become an annual tradition this is I think our third show in this yes, series yes, yes. Um, which is the best books of the previous year series so we're talking about best books and films Jimmy <laughs> of 2018 today so I think that um, Michelle and I have both prepared three although you can as you'll see, I've cheated with my three. And then we'll talk to Jimmy about his film. Yes. So should I start? Look, Stephanie, I think yes. You <laughs> should definitely start. And to be fair, Jimmy's back from New York and you've been madly preparing semester. So there are, there are good reasons. And me, I'm just feeling feeble-minded. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this, this There's no excuse podcast. for me. <laughs> okay, so my I have cheated really badly because I thought I would theme some of my selections. So I had a very kind of classical mythology kind of year last year. And my first selection for my best books is actually three books. One of them is the um, is a translation of The Odyssey, which is actually Emily Wilson's translation, new translation of The Odyssey, which came out last year, although The Odyssey was obviously not written in 2018. Um, I've also packaged with it Madeline Miller's uh, novel Circe. And I've packaged with that Pat Barker's The Silence of the Girls. So let me talk about that. So... Um, Emily Wilson is a classic scholar. Um, she works in the US, but she's originally English, and she's the first um, woman to translate the Odyssey into English. I think I've heard about this. Did yeah. Audible recently just do it? Yeah, Audible did. Yeah. It's it's been a quite a like a media story mm, from yes. in the past year. And also, you went and saw her at the Sydney. Yeah, I did. Went. Yeah, I went to see her at the Sydney Writers Festival. Yeah. So she's. I mean, even though that sounds absurd, that it's been you know around for four thousand years, and she's the first woman to translate it into English. Yeah. Um, it's a really interesting um, translation, so she approached it as poetry, which is what it is, but um, a lot of the previous translations have been very wordy, um, very prose-like, very, um, they've made it longer, really. Oh, okay. um, so what she's done is she's set herself some kind of parameters about how she did the, the translation, which is that she retained the line length. Um, so... Another parameter that she sent, uh, that she set herself, is that she wrote it in iambic pentameter, <laughs> as like the the kind of poetic meter in English, whereas the Odyssey is in dactylic hexameter, which is a poetic meter in Greek. Um, she puts it in iambic pentameter, but it, it actually makes a really snappy, really fast, really quick paced translation. Like you know, I've read the Odyssey before, but this time I was struck with how fast moving it was and how kind of. Um, I guess, you know, sing-songy, which is really how it should be because it was, you know, an oral piece, right? It wouldn't have been written down at first. It would have been shared orally. Um, it was really, really good. She makes it really modern and she makes it really um, fresh. It was like reading something that I hadn't read before, even though, you know, what happens in the Odyssey is just sort of so kind of culturally... Um, known and around us so you know it's not like new stories but the way that she presents it was very kind of um, engaging and interesting she does this beautiful really long introduction and note on her translation um, it's a beautiful volume it's really thick but it didn't take me long to read at all because you just sort of go right through it 
it's just a wonderful piece of translation. I think it's I think it's the best translation in the Odyssey that I've read. And he certainly, if I teach it in the future, I'd be using that because it was just such an accessible um, translation without like you losing any kind of intellectual rigor. And then there were two novels that came out which were sort of themed around the Odyssey or the Iliad um, this year. The first of them is Circe by Madeleine Miller. We were just talking about the Song of Achilles, Jimmy, and this is her sort of follow-up to that. So she takes the story of Circe, which is like a, a sort of subplot in um, the Odyssey about the, the witch, Circe, the first witch in, um, in Western literature, and she turns it into a novel about this woman who lives on the outskirts of, like, the world of the gods and also the outskirts of the world of... Um, of humans and it's really beautifully written it's um quite long and meandering but it never feels kind of long and meandering um it's got a really lovely story that runs through it she writes beautifully about place so Circe has this island um that she's sort of banished to because of various things that she does if you know the odyssey um or your greek mythology you'll sort of understand um and she writes beautifully about this island where she lives by herself. Um, and I just thought, oh, what an island that I can live on by myself. And, yeah, so it's really lovely. It's a really well-done book. And she makes Odysseus, who is, you know, the central figure in the Odyssey and Circe is a side character, she flips it. So she keeps Odysseus in Circe as much as Circe's in the Odyssey. Okay, excellent. Yep. Yeah. Excellent. I'm yeah. actually Googling this mm. right now to see if I can get it on Booko. Yeah. So yeah. You know, if it's I look really distracted, lovely. that's what I'm doing. Yeah, no, it's really it's, just um, it's really well done. I think it's better. Like the Song of Achilles is very popular. It won the Women's Prize a few years ago. I think this is better than mm-hmm. that. And it's, you know, an, a lovely kind of feminist writing against something like the Odyssey, although it's very kind of um it's not bagging out the Odyssey, but it's looking at the, the women that sort of furnish the side stories of the Odyssey. And um, my third one that I'm packaging very sneakily oh, into this... All this cheating. I know, I know. <laughs> I, I used to be so good and now I'm so bad. It's um, <laughs> Pat Barker's The Silence of the Girls, and that is similar to um, Circe in that it's a side story. This time it's a side story from the Iliad, which is Briseis, who is the, mm-hmm. um, the woman that is... Um, the yeah, the sold in slavery to Achilles... Um, and it's her story, and it's horrendously violent as the Iliad is and horrendously distressing as the Iliad is, but it's written so beautifully about the kind of forgotten lives um, that are impacted by war but aren't at the centre of wars. Um, so, you know, you just read over the Iliad and you hear about, you know, this woman was sold as a prize to Achilles. What, what does that mean? Um and she writes in such a beautiful way that really makes you understand what that means. And the first scene, which is actually um, when she's captured and sold into slavery because she's a, she's a queen, um, is so violent and so disturbing, but it's written so brilliantly. Um, and so in my head, these three texts, one a translation, two, two novels are kind of connected and bringing kind of women back into our understanding of classical mythology and really centering the women's stories that are kind of um, tangential, I suppose, in the original epics, or at least brushed off into into a subplot. So that's why I've I've sneakily collated them into one. So I would I would recommend highly recommend Emily Wilson's translation of the Odyssey, Circe and the Silence of the Girls. Ah, oh, fabulous! <sighs> that's wow. tiring. 
Okay. <laughs> it's your turn. Coolie dooly. Well, I think I'll give my three a theme now, which I probably didn't realise until I was listening to you. But <laughs> I think I actually had a little bit of a confessional year. <laughs> and so the three stories are, I guess, loosely speaking, confessionals. So one is by Argentinian writer um, Anna Warwitz. And it's called Die My Love. The other is by Nora Lang or Lange, and she's also Argentinian, and that is People in the Room. And then my third was by um, a writer. I'm going to have to have a look at my phone because the name just eludes me. But it's Children in the Cave, Children of the Cave, and. Um, it is by, um, you probably even remember because I practiced saying it so many times um, <laughs> before the podcast and now I still can't remember um, what his name was. Um, Verve Samokorpi. That sounds right. Yeah, look. <laughs> well, yes, forgive me for not having that one um, off, the, off the top of my head. And in actual fact... Um, I think each one of them had a had a vaguely desperate quality to them. Um, what does it say about your year? I, I don't know. Tell me more. I don't know. And I need to qualify this as well because and it's too. well, yeah, no, no. I do need to confess that I think that these books did not all come out in two thousand and eighteen. I think one. Well, the Odyssey been, did was written quite some time ago. Well, I'm not taking the same liberties as you, <laughs> Stephanie. Let's just say that. Um, but die, my love is. Ah, oh, it was it was stunning. It was the prose I think that really uh, arrested me, in the sense that this was the, um, it was this language of a mother uh, imagining incredibly um, sort of violent and illicit things about her baby and Ooh. husband. Um, so it sort of opens with this very sort of visceral scene in in a sort of um, in a in a rural um, sort of lot where she's lying in the grass with the feeling of a knife in her hands while describing um, her husband and, and baby um, uh, sort of playing quite. Um, idyllically one would think except for the knife in the hand um, so I think what she captured so brilliantly and if this is a, a, a translation um, was uh, this incredible um, energy and the, the prose itself had this wild quality to it and I listened to her interviewed um, on the LRB and she actually described the sort of process that she needed to do to try and get that language and of course it's quite a short book because it is so intense mm. and it's one of those things where you're very much um, sort of it's 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 obviously it's, it's first person you're completely limited in terms of your view on this world but you know, sort of, even as she's having these most alarming thoughts, and uh, it's incredibly erotic too, in many respects, um, as well as disturbing. Um, you're incredibly much pl- 
placed on her side, I think, mm. um, which was sort of exhilarating <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a strange way. And then um, the, the second book that I enjoyed, remembered and had that wonderful afterlife um, that you don't always know a book is going to have until a good few months afterwards was People in the Room by Argentinian writer Nora Lang. And she was actually, um, I guess, sort of part of a, um, a, a literary clique that included Borges. And she was very young and Borges was older at that point. Um, but she certainly enjoyed some literary um, success but then uh, has all sort of dropped off the page and has sort of recently been rediscovered and this book's been, was published by um, and other stories. I think that was 2017. Um, but she has this story of an adolescent who the entire story sort of really is made up of her observation through window into another, through another window of these three women who sit and she observes them and sort of creates a very sort of rich world around them. But then she actually, um, which seems so shocking at the time, she actually infiltrates their room. So she actually introduces herself and, and, and inserts herself mm-hmm. in their drawing room. And... So it's 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 just one of those stories where I think it's um, it's sort of disturbing, it's sort of um, subversive, and it's hard to put your finger on exactly what it is that's going on. And I think that's what drew me to those uh, those two texts was that there was very much this, um, I guess, this subversive feminism at play uh, that was entirely engrossing, and it was once again. Um, you're very much locked within the the mind of somebody that you're not entirely comfortable being, but sort of want to be at the same time. And um, so, to me, that that's a wonderful thing that that books do. And then the final one was Children of the Cave, and it's actually has this uh, sort of marvelous um, formatting where it's it's sort of and this um, frame narrative of somebody who discovers the lost fragments of a diary so it's like Robinson Crusoe and um, we know how you feel about Frankenstein yeah 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 but this is what Frank Mm. this is what should have happened to (laughs) Robinson Crusoe's diary somebody needed to destroy a third of it (laughs) and it might have made for compelling reading well that's right with the cheese the cheese and the goats my goodness there was a whole list there's a whole lot of things that we could have got Look, somebody just needed to burn random extracts of it and then it would have been enigmatic, it would have yeah, been suspenseful yeah. and it would have been something more like Children of the Book, which, you know, it, it's, it is, it's, it's Frankenstein and Robinson Crusoe, sort of plus, but set in a Russian forest. Oh, that sounds cool. Yeah, yeah, mm. it's super cool. And it's just uh, based on a sort of... Um, uh, you know, once again, it's it's sort of the the acolyte who tells the story, and increasingly uh, who follows a, a, a sort of a renowned explorer professor who wants to study um, these uh, children, who wants to go to this remote location, which means that this 
entourage of men um, set up shop essentially in the remote sort of wilderness where there's no no other human beings around and observe quite literally children of the cave who happen to have um, animal features so oh. some and it, it, it's quite creepy because there's images that accompany you can actually go online and, and see these images of children who might have um, for example a face like a cat or you know sort of feathers or a t- just weird and strange so almost um, like island dr moreau mm. yeah look that mm. would probably also fit in mm. if we were sort of thinking about literary reference points uh and of course the the narrative breaks off in places where you need it not to break off um you know sort of people start dying and the um, i was going to say when do people start dying yeah, yeah. and madness sets in so it's actually also heart of darkness too oh, yeah, like, yeah it's got it's got it's the very works. fun read yeah. for Shelley. oh yeah no no i totally completely it's one of the most uplifting books uh, <laughs> do, you ever, do you ever just read crap <laughs> oh, I look i probably i think i don't know i do watch a lot of great british bake-off though oh my god we well, were just, just talking about, about that and my addiction um, to cake, cupcake wars and cake wars and oh, kids baking championship. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think no, that your no. book resolution this year, I'm going to suggest one. Yeah. That is, re- I mean, you do some very, very virtuous reading, very dark reading. I think you should read some more fun books. Look, more do you trash. know, it is 2019. <laughs> it is the time for resolutions, isn't it? New it's Year's the age of trash. Yeah, I think you should read some trash. Look, can I say that all of these books help me sleep at night? Well, that is good. Because <laughs> you know? there's only so much you can read before you fall asleep. Yeah, these days it's becoming but, very short for me. But yeah. then at the same time, they seem to leave these indelible marks on my mind. Well, that is I, very good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 I mean, that is very good. That is very um, worthy. I feel like I read a lot more trash than you, though. I think I read... I, I love... Um, I, I guess there's something about the the stylistics of of a, of a certain prose mm. that I need in order to be arrested. Mm-hmm. And if it's not there, mm-hmm. if there's not if the, if there's not that certain level mm-hmm. of sort of complexity and intrigue, then I think I develop or you know sort of exhibit my sort of vaguely ADD tendencies. <laughs> I'm, I'm out of the book and I can't yeah. I well, can't keep track. Yeah, that is absolutely good. I, um, yeah, I feel I, I don't feel that way. I feel like when I'm tired, stylistics easily go out the window and all I want to read yeah, is something really, I, really formulaic and easy to swallow. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I think it is just that thing that I do find that as soon mm. as I get if, as soon as I recognise, as soon as things become familiar to me, yeah, because it's either cliched or it's just the language is too close to ordinary, it loses my, I lose my, yeah, I can't keep my attention, mm. and it needs to have something that just compels me, um, and that's I guess the reading tendency. Mm. But as I say, I do counter it with Great British Bake Off, <laughs> um, which which is a lot of fun. Cupcake Wars, Cake Wars, love them. Kids Baking Championship, those kids are creepy as hell. I yeah, look, <laughs> I do find I do find them too disturbing. They see yeah. this is I can't cope with that because it's just too disturbing. I mean, a, a child should not know how to make donuts from scratch. I'm sorry. I guess no, that's some technique. So so a child with a cat face is fine, but a child <laughs> who can bake is too disturbing. Yeah, 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 totally. Let's not let's not 
analyze the intellectual consistency in Michelle's <laughs> hobbies. And remember, it was an unusual year last year. It was an unusual year. I think it was an unusual year for, for everyone in the world. Yeah, yes. yeah. And, and I think that was just my antidote. Fair enough. Yeah, to... to, to um, <laughs> I can't explain it. Why bother? Those are the three books that stuck in my mind. and so. Well, I have because I cheated, I actually have two left. Oh. So I, I folded the first three into one, oh, so yeah, I, I have two know, more yeah, left. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'll quickly go over them. One of them is a non-fiction book, um, and that is Seduction, <laughs> Sex, Lies and Stardom in Howard Hughes's Hollywood by Karina Longworth. I don't know why I have to say it in that way. Except you do I have feel to say like, no, no, no. I feel like I can't necessary. say Seduction in like an ordinary voice. I have to say it like that. Anyway, so <laughs> it's about... so. Um, you must remember this. Yes. It's one of my very, very, very favourite podcasts. It is a great um, Hollywood history, film history podcast. It mostly follows, um, is interested in stories about classic Hollywood. A few years ago, it was really popular because um, she did a miniseries on Charles Manson mm. and Charles Manson's kind of um, association with Hollywood and with the music industries. Um, so this is a book that she's been working on for a few years and it's notionally about Howard Hughes, the Hollywood producer, aviator, etc. He was the the um, the movie The Aviator was about Howard Hughes along with um, Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, so anyway, this is ostensibly about him, but really it's about all the women that were in his orbit, either as kind of lovers, wives, or um, actresses signed to his production company. And really, what it's about is about women in film, and women in celebrity, and the ways in which um, Hollywood treated women for say its first up until, say, the, the late 50s. Um, it's super fascinating. There are great stories. She, there's about 10 women that she focuses on. Some of them are very well known, like Eugene Harlow's and Catherine Hepburn's, the, the names that are still kind of very recognisable. Some of them, um, like Billy Dove and Faith Demurg, um, are really kind of unknown today, but were kind of, especially Billy Dove was a huge, she'd never, someone I'd never heard of, but she was a huge um, silent movie star at the time. She was like the you know, the most beautiful woman in the world in, like, 1923 and, and unfortunately <laughs> completely passed out of our cultural memory today. Um, it's so fascinating, this book. Um, she tells all of these stories about their interactions with Howard Hughes, who was crazy and really, really... I mean, he kept... He was an aviator and he kept on having um, traumatic brain injuries from crashing his plane, like, really. And surviving. And surviving, wow. miraculously. And so, you know, there's only so many times you can get into a terrible plane accident and survive and your brain's still fine. So he ends up becoming, like, insanely controlling. He was always controlling and weird and, you know, had this kind of um, devil-may-care attitude to life. But by the end, he's, he's controlling the lives of these women to a, like, ridiculous degree, stalking his wife, stalking his girlfriends, monitoring them, you know, putting spies on them. Um, following them around, preventing them from talking to people, pretending that he was overseas when he's in fact staying at the hotel room opposite oh, you so that he could watch what they were doing. And it, it's not just about these women's personal lives, but it's also about like their professional careers and the kind of ways in which they were constructed in the, in the media and the kind of image, the star image that we associate with people and how he helped control that or, or limit that in many ways. It's so fascinating. If you have any interest in classic Hollywood, um, I would recommend you read it. I listened to it on audio, and to be honest, I was really upset when it was over. 
because I was like, I just want to keep listening. Um, really, really just fantastic. And I guess also in terms of a sort of a genealogy for the way that um, film is today. And the yeah, way that that's right. And yeah. are, are managed and the degree to which he perhaps set up the prototype for that. Yeah, and certainly, I mean, when you think about all of the women whose careers he he came into contact with either in a professional or personal capacity, it's almost everybody. Um, there's there's so many stars at his star image and um, careers that he really helped shape in, in ways that they found it very difficult to break out of and still kind of feed the way we think about like female celebrity. And we forget that there is a history to that phenomenon. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, because I mean, that actually sounds like a book that I might read, would it classify as light reading for me, do you think? I think not? it would count as, yeah, no, I think it would be, be light reading for you. <laughs> and she's she's an excellent, um, she's an excellent prose stylist as well. I mean, it's not, even though it's non-fiction and it's, you know, a lot of functional, yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's beautifully written. And she and she's very thoughtful and she she does this really nice um, intro where she doesn't, she doesn't talk about, say, Donald Trump or anything like that, but she talks about, like, let's think about, like, the Playboy Mm. And like that image of like the man with all of these women, and that was used to be this, you know, thing that was represented quite positively, and you know, it was a quite attractive thing, unproblematic. unproblematic. And looking at those stories now, you think, it just gosh, makes you feel sick, doesn't it, it? It does make you feel sick, and the, the amount of control he exerted. And by the end, he's like, he's basically living in a in a movie theater, and like having servants bring him food, and like not leaving this movie theater unwashed. For days on end, and yet still controlling the lives of the women who were in his orbit, it it just becomes this really kind of odd story, but a very recognisable story. I don't think that Hollywood is dramatically different from that now. I mean, based on the stories that we have around the Me Too movement, um, and it, it's interesting too, just not even related to to Hollywood, but just the way we think about women the way we think about women with public profile, the way we think about celebrity and the, the ways that women can be thought of, I suppose. You know, if you are this kind of woman, you can't be that kind of woman. If you're put in that box, that's the box that you're in forever and you can't kind of break out of it or complicate that in any way. So, I mean, it's it's related to all sorts of things. If you listen to, um, you must remember this, she is an excellent um Excellent at kind of relating those stories, those individual stories, to kind of the wider cultural context, and this book does that as well. So I would highly recommend it. And if you listen to it on audio, as I did, you get to hear her beautiful voice <laughs> tell you all these stories while you're on the treadmill. So, <laughs> so I enjoyed that. Um, so that was my second pick. My third pick, I have really, really, really cheated, although The Odyssey was written like 4,000 years ago, and that's a cheat. Um, the, at least the translation was done next year, last year rather. Um, this last book was written in 1957. <laughs> but the reason I have chosen it is because I discovered it last year. So I attend a book club um, one Tuesday every month. And my book club... she's not busy enough. I yeah. know, because I, I need more things to do. Um, so my book club last year read a trio of novels by Elizabeth Taylor. Not that Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> not the actress with the purple eyes and okay. black hair. Um, it, this is a, an English novelist mid-century, mid-20th century novelist. And she wrote in 1957 this book called Angel. Angel is set in the late 19th century, although most of the books that Elizabeth Taylor set are kind of contemporary novels based around, you know, set in the 40s, 30s, 40s, 50s when she was alive. Um, This is actually set in the late 19th century. It's about this terrible, terrible writer 
called Angel, and she's a hack writer. She's the most arrogant, selfish monster that has ever lived. And it's about her life, basically from a very young child to when she dies. And she decides, because she likes attention, basically, she decides to become a novelist. She's a hack novelist. She's terrible but very popular. She writes a very kind of, um, like a, almost like a, crappy romance novelist, I suppose, is the best way to describe her. And she is this hack hack novelist, but this incredible ego. And it's so funny. And it's about her life, and it's just she's so terrible that it's actually quite exhilarating. You know how you were talking about, like, being in the consciousness of somebody yep. like that? Yeah, yeah, She's yeah. so horrible, and she has no idea. And she has this, you know, she falls in love with this with this man, but really it's a kind of... She doesn't, she's not really in love with this man. She's sort of in love with this image of being in love. And she, she attracts this kind of offsider who is a fan of hers and she just ruins her life. And she's this aggressively awful person. And Elizabeth Taylor is so fantastic. Not a word is wasted in these books. My, my book club, we always end up talking about like how modern novels are too long mm-hmm. and need editing. Yep, and yep, the, thing yep. with, um, the thing with Elizabeth Taylor is they're very short novels. Mm-hmm. So they couldn't be, they probably wouldn't even reach 200 pages, most of them. They're very spare, but like not a word is wasted. And she's so funny and she's so clever. And the way she describes secondary characters, she'll just describe something about them and you can see them in your head and her creation of of angel who is this terrible human being is just spot on you end up feeling sorry for her even though she's so awful and she ends up living in this huge house that she's kind of been you know she grew up very poor and she wanted to you know she was very she thought she was more deserving of living there than the people who did and she ends up living there and it ends up sort of falling around down around oh, her ears so and like a Miss uh, Havisham yeah she turns yeah, into yeah. definitely a Miss Havisham and you know she's desperately lonely in the end but she's so terrible that no one wants to be around her and it's so funny and so great and everyone should read Elizabeth Taylor wow um, yeah super, I'm keen yeah, yeah, yeah I'm she's keen. a really great I mean and it's the thing is Angel is not at all like her other novels her other novels are, are kind of um contemporary slice of life kind of novels but they're equally fantastic but because angel was so funny and i'm a sucker for a funny novel um that really got me the other ones i've read are in a summer season which is fantastic it's about a woman who um marries a she's widowed and she marries a much younger man and that's a bit scandalous because it's like 1940s Brings, you know, yep, yep, yep. Um, and then Wreath of Roses, which again is a sort of like a social kind of um, observational novel, and she's so good, and she doesn't waste a sentence. Her her prose is so sharp, yeah. and it's funny, and every every side character is beautifully rendered, and everyone in the book club um, just absolutely fell in love with her, and we will now press. Elizabeth Taylor on and everybody and there's actually a biography I just picked up the other day it's called The Other Elizabeth Taylor <laughs> um, so yes you should all read The Other Elizabeth Taylor not The Actress fantastic I'm look, that's why I'm, I cheated I'm really keen I'm super keen for 2019 to read um, um, yeah to yeah, read yeah, The Other yeah, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Taylor yeah The yeah. Other Elizabeth Taylor anyway so that's yeah. yes, yes so that's why I cheated because I thought everyone needs to why read not? that but yeah. it's, it's so unfair that she's fallen into this obscurity when she's really quite stunning but also, you read them in two thousand and eighteen. I so read them in two. Yeah, so it totally counts. Perfectly. Yep, absolutely counts. That's for sure. Jimmy, <laughs> movies. You have a movie to tell us about. I do, and it's a film that uh, Michelle and I actually watch together. Um, and I don't know actually how to talk about this movie without giving massive 
spoilers about it because it's... Don't spoil. Oh. It's bad. What do you think? It's Look, I mean, loosely speaking, it's a detective story, it isn't is. it? Okay, yeah, well, I'm going to start and, and yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll stop where we're, wherever we stop. So basically the film is Japanese film. It's called uh, The Crimes That Bind. And it's written, it's actually based on a, a famous Japanese uh, bestseller by uh, Keiko Higashino, his name is. Uh, and a lot of his books have now begun to be translated into English. So I'm looking forward to reading them. Uh, they're detective fiction novels. So this one is based on a, a series, and I think it's the last of the series. And it feels like yeah. the last of, of, yeah. of something, I think. There's a, there's a pivotal scene at the end, of which I won't talk about, um, that sort of makes it fairly clear that you're, you're revisiting a whole bunch of characters who, yeah. Because it's as much about a city, isn't it, it as is. it is as it is anything else, and yeah. it very much and it, so that is what makes. And I think we could almost talk about the final scene because oh, it's okay. So don't talk about the final scene; it's too spoilery. Okay, so no. so or, the premise of the film yeah. is uh, there is a murder, obviously, as most detective fiction happens, strangely enough, um, and it's a very unusual murder in that it's connected to the lead detective's uh, mother. Yeah. And he's been on... So basically, it's, it, it's very complex stories. It's hard to sort of explain in detail. But he's a detective and he solved a lot of crime before this particular case happened. But anyway, he, he, his mother abandoned him when he was a child. Uh, and he only found out about her whereabouts after she died. And he got this phone call from somebody to say, oh, apparently you're the child, so would you like to see, you know, collect her belongings? Uh, and in her belongings, there is a calendar. Mm-hmm. And in this calendar, there is, every single month, there's a name of a famous bridge in Tokyo somewhere. Mm-hmm. And he's, for I think 10 years it was, he's been trying to figure out, he's trying to crack this code. Okay. What are these bridges? What do they have to do with the person who was his mother's lover? So he's, he wants to find out more about his mother, so he needs to track this person down, his mother's lover. And in the artifact of the victim that he's found, is a calendar with the exact same bridge names on every Ooh. single month. So there's the connection between the two of them. Right. Now, that's as much as I can tell you without yeah. going into spoilers because so much of the film is actually about him unearthing or finding out more about his mother. Oh, that sounds simple. And finding yeah. out a connection in a way between him and the, the victim and yeah. criminal. That, you know, so that's why it's called the crimes that bind. It's the way that um, certain crimes have connected both the detective and the criminal in this case. Um, and it is absolutely brilliant. And I have, without giving any spoilers away, that let's say I watched it with Michelle and she was reduced to tears by the, by the end of it. But, but as I say, you know, the end doesn't actually give you the... doesn't solve the mystery. The final scene doesn't mm. solve the mystery. But when... We, when you think about the movie, and then you, th- I mean, you think about that wonderful metaphor of the bridges and you know, mm. the connection, with, yeah. you know, all of that. I mean, it just keeps. Gi- it's a movie that keeps giving. It is, but, and, I, and I haven't been able to stop, you know, thinking about it. It's yeah, just been so wonderful. But it is as much about Tokyo as it is about anything else, and mm. so you have that wonderful moment where it captures a tsunami, and things don't fall into place immediately because, mm. you know, sort of the apartment um, and the the city changed, you know, sort of pre and post tsunami and then you, you have the bridges and I think the thing mm. that I really you know the thing that I really loved about it um what wasn't the thing that I really <laughs> loved about it but was that the detective himself um was rather than your sort of Byronic 
mm. character um, who spent you know, 30 years of his life being morose and, yeah, you know, mopey. sort of mopey mm. and all yeah, of those yeah, sorts of things. Yeah, yeah, the usual kind of detective, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he, he totally, totally had it in terms of the food, wasn't yeah, it? Like yeah, the food. I mean, I'd, he, he could have been me, really. I mean, <laughs> so he was a foodie detective. He was a foodie. He loved food. And, but uh, he was friendly. All of the little was, shops yeah. that he stopped in. He was there's, beloved. He was part of the fabric of that area. Okay, so he's not like yeah. the outside detective. I mean, detective, there, yeah. there's a wonderful scene that... I guess could be me if I ever found myself in that situation where he was trying to interview um, some potential um, witnesses and he offers them a box of Japanese sweet cakes. And, you know, the traditions, you offer it and they take some, so he offers it. And before they could reach over and take some, he grabs one quickly and puts it in his mouth and they're just there looking at him like, so you related to him. So I thought I went, yeah, yeah that's something <laughs> I would probably do, you know, <laughs> if I find the food too irresistible to to stop. But, but also he ended up located in that part of the city exclusively mm. because of the case that he, you know, and his mm. mother's, you know, yeah. and he sort of came on to the, I found it interesting because it sort of subverted some sort of genre expectations that I had mm. because it's actually his younger cousin detective who starts out as, as the a main detective. detective yeah. mm. And so when he initially comes in, I was actually wondering, oh, is he going to be a Badly. Yeah, is he going to throw? You almost thought you he know, might be the criminal one, you know, because we're still sort of looking at it from a very different perspective, I guess. Uh, if you're Japanese and you've read the series, then obviously he's a familiar figure. So, yeah. but we sort of enter it as the last <laughs> or the first. Yeah, know. or bringing all that baggage, yes. like the, so the, the first detective and mm. yeah, yeah, our expectation. So the first books hadn't been adapted. No, or just the no. Last so one? the series itself began in the eighties. So it's been quite a long running okay. series. Uh, detective Kaga is his name. Uh, and around about the late 90s, I think it was, uh, there was a shift and they relocated him to uh, an area of, of Tokyo, which I've completely forgotten the name of now. Uh, and it was mainly for the purpose of his mother trying to track his mother, so trying to trace right. his, his origin. Uh, and he's solving a lot of other cases during this time. So um, my guess is, because I haven't read the entire series, uh, this is the final book mm. in that yeah. of collection okay. of stories. The only other adaptation that I'm aware of, uh, of this particular series... Is, is the previous book, the one before right. uh, The Crimes That Bind, uh, that, in, that again sort of introduces the detective and has the same actor, incidentally, who plays Detective uh, Kaka. He's, he's fantastic. Yeah. So yeah. He's, the, he's the great Hiroshi Abe, who I always said looks a little bit like, um, oh, I forgot his name now, the, the uh, Hank Azaria. Oh, really? <laughs> he looks like a Japanese Hank Azaria. I don't know why. <laughs> Amazing. But he's a very odd looking, um, very handsome in his own way, but very odd looking uh, yeah. man. But anyway, the series, I mean, the story itself, I think is it's probably more of a tragedy than it is a detective fiction, you know, without okay. giving any sort of spoilers yeah. away. It's uh, it's really quite a beautiful, sad, complex story. There's a lot of um, doubling that occurs in this film, and the more you sort of break it apart, the more you realise this sort of strange doubling. Not only is the detective and the, and the criminal, you know, sort of doubled for each other, but uh, the paths that their lives have led are actually also very, very similar. So there's the uh, abandonment uh, issue that comes... Um, there's there's a whole wonderful theatre metaphor mm. yeah, yeah. that occurs as well. So, um, that so sounds great. Oh, it's it's just a wonderful, wonderful film, and I'm sure it's going to be a wonderful book too once I, I get my hand on a yeah. translation of it. And it, it. But it's that it was the quality of the bittersweet, wasn't it? Throughout it was. And I, that was what reduced me to tears. It was yeah, the farewelling and, the food. And I have it to say, the it is the food <laughs> that made me cry. It was just that was the point. Well, let's just say that at the end. Okay, first up. It's the longest denouement I've ever seen on film. <laughs> it's probably about 40, no, the last hour, I think it's about an hour and a half, 
and the last hour is literally a, a, a denouement. It's really long. Uh, but there's three major things that happens at the end. Michelle survives through the first one, bravely, without any tears. Yep. The second one basically had her, you know... On the brink. On, on the, the brink. brink. Yep. And the yep. third yep. thing just... That's yeah, it. That, she that was, was a complete yeah. So it's a straw that broke the camel's back. So take yeah. some tissue. Yeah, take some tissue. Michelle wasn't the only one who, who cried. The entire cinema was just... <laughs> Except tears. for Jimmy, who was seeing his Jimmy. Oh, no, I stoically wiped away a few tears. <laughs> oh, yeah. right. No, it was a very... It was a beautiful, uh, tragic story in the best sense of the word tragic. You know, I think it is a tragedy. Uh, and for me, it had a fascinating detective figure and an equally fascinating criminal as well. You know, I think oh, the criminal was just... Yeah. Yeah. One of the most oh, fascinating criminals yeah. I've, yeah. I've encountered. And also a very sympathetic one, okay. which is very hard to do yeah, I think, for, I agree. for a story oh, like yeah. that. Because I think yeah. by the end, you just, you had total and utter sympathy for, for the criminal. And okay, I'm going to add this to my list. This sounds yeah. fantastic. Yeah, yeah. so um, my sister, who uh, is a translator for, a Japanese translator, so she actually reads and uh, she speaks Japanese fluently. She watched it with us and she told me a lot of the... Um, sort of trivia about the, the story that she knew mm. because he's a famous author uh, and she said that one of the things that um, uh, you know it, it's hard to actually translate and and this sort of, sort of shows the detail that they put into mm. is that there's a scene there where uh, one of the characters talks to another character it's so difficult to talk about this without giving spoilers <laughs> to another character uh, and she's very vengeful in this scene and she uses a particular dialogue that Oh, dialect, sorry, not dialogue. Dialect that, unless you're a native Japanese speaker, you're not going to be able to tell the difference. Right. And so the kind of detail that they put into yeah. these sort of things to, to sort of drive that point home, um, it's it's absolutely oh, fascinating. Okay. And it's a very rich uh, and beautiful story. Fabulous women characters. Fabulous, absolutely yeah. wonderful yeah. female characters. Uh, and, yeah, very rare, I think, for a detective story mm. to have such well-developed characters oh um, yeah you know not just well-developed male characters well -developed yeah. female characters female and, characters are so and also kind of can be so problematic yeah and well-developed um supporting characters too i think you know mm. so there's a lot of characters there you're, you're kind of like that's really interesting and i think it would be absolutely fascinating to read the entire series because it seems like there's a lot of history behind mm. all these different characters and all we're getting is really at the end of it just a glimpse of mm. some of these characters so that's why i mentioned at the end there's a scene there that sort of it's a bittersweet farewell to a lot of the characters that you may have met in right. other stories. In so other that would mean more read it, yeah. Yeah, so I think there's a lot there for people who are familiar with the series, but for people like us who just sort of came into their fresh not knowing a single thing about it, it was a uh, revelation. Like I yeah. thought it was just, you know, probably the best film I've seen in quite a long time. Uh, Amazing. And, you know, I'm a huge detective fiction fan. So and you also see a lot of films. And I do see a lot yeah. of films. And this one really just surprised me because I, I walked in there... To be honest, I was a little bit sceptical. I read the plot and I thought, oh, yeah, 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 whatever. It doesn't sound that interesting. Uh, and then I walked out of there going, wow, that's really amazing. It's very rare that you sort of walk out of yeah. a film just feeling this amazing mm. sense of, you know, you just watch something quite special. And the fact that we just mentioned Michelle to actually yeah. tears. Just, <laughs> <laughs> just bonus, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. just icing on the cake, yeah. <laughs> All right, so that is quite a few books and a film to go on with. So I think this is some really excellent recommendations for our listeners. Um, I look forward to doing this again next year. I mean, I know I will see you before then, but <laughs> it'll be good to do the best books of 2019 in early 2020. Look, I vow 
to do some light reading and okay. come back to you. Okay. You best can. light reading. Yep. Best best light reading. Okay. I will. Yep. I will not make any recommend make any um, resolutions because I don't keep them. So <laughs> I'll just continue to read as crazily as I do now. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you, Jimmy. Thank you, Steph. All right, so this has been another episode of From the Lighthouse. If you could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, that would be very, very appreciated. Or just drop us a line at fromthelighthouse.org. If you've got any recommendations for us or if you've got suggestions for future shows or if you want to come and have a chat with us um, in an interview format, if you've written a book or something like that, um, then just let us know. Otherwise, we'll see you again in two weeks. Bye.